0: perspective of three different characters that we find in the story. We're going to first of all look at Cornelius. Anybody know Cornelius? Okay, have you read the book? Have you read the story before? Cornelius? He was a Roman centurion. Okay, a Roman centurion. So what do we know about him? Well, let's find out some things. Number one, he was a military man. Okay, he was a military man. It says in Acts chapter ten, verse one, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius. Now he was a centurion. You know what a centurion is? Head of of what? Head of a hundred men. It's the smallest unit of the Roman army. Okay, so he was a head of centurion. How many of you know like centenarian? That's a 100-year-old person, okay? Century is 100 years old. So a centurion is a man who oversees a 100 recruits, 100 men, 100 privates, okay? So he, he was that guy. And uh, he was in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Now, what army was he part of? The Roman Army, yeah. The Italian, get it? Italian Rome. Yeah, we'll do a little geography lesson next week. But but he was he was he was a a centurion. He was the head man of the hundred people in the Roman legion or in the Roman army and the Italian regiment specifically. Now it's interesting because and this is a little bonus material too. Uh, you wonder about you know archaeological evidence for the validity of the Bible. There's archaeological evidence that shows the Italian legion was inscribed on some of the uh, buildings uh, that are now being rediscovered in the Holy Land. It's kind of interesting. Uh, and again, why do we want to know that? Because it gives the validity for our belief in the Bible. It is true. Check this out. Archaeological evidence bears out the, the things that it talks about. It shows them to be true. And so, therefore, it's another reason why I believe. What's another reason that you believe the Bible? Because of the prophecy. Okay, prophecies. Okay? <laughs> I know that was a little bit hard to figure out. But I'm a phonetic guy, so you know, for me, it works. Uh, w U R K S works for me. Um, so. <laughs> Bless all of you people who are listening via the internet. Okay, <laughs> But uh, uh, there's archaeological evidence, there's prof- prophecy evidence, of things that were predicted beforehand actually come true. And so that's another reason to believe the Bible. But let's get back to Cornelius. He was not just a military man, he was a respected man. Now, you can imagine being in the Roman army that the people, the Jewish people that you're kind of keeping in, in, in check... You, they might not respect you very much because you're a foreigner. You're, you're not one of them. And you're kind of oppressive because a lot of the Roman uh, people uh, were oppressive to the Jewish people. They let them practice their religion, uh, but they couldn't create their own laws in regard to punishment for people, uh, those kinds of things. So there were some restrictions that the Romans did place on the Jews. And you can imagine some of these Jews kind of get their back up and say, you know, you're in my country. You're in my hometown. And who are you to tell me what to do? But nonetheless, Cornelius was a man who was respected by the Jewish people. In the last part of chapter 10, verse 22, it says, who is respected by all the Jewish people. So there were some things that he had done that gained him some respect. Now, what is it that you do that gains you respect? Honesty, Honesty, okay? Integrity, okay? What are some of the actual physical things that you can do? Well, let's take a look here, because not only was he a military man and a respected man, he was a religious man. Okay? He was a religious man. Now, he's a Roman, right? And so he is a Gentile. We're going to figure this out here in a minute. He's a Gentile, but yet he was a religious man. It says in Acts chapter 10, verse 2, he and his family were devout and God-fearing. Now, there's kind of an interesting term here that's used is, is God-fearing. There were some people that were Jewish, Okay? They were born Jewish, raised Jewish. They were Jewish. There were some people that were Gentiles that admired the way of the Jewish people. And they admired the, the, the practices of the Jewish people. They admired the integrity. They admired the character of the Jewish people. And so they were drawn to that. And what caused the Jewish people to be the way they were was well, because of their faith in God. And so therefore they had this foundation, and that was very attractive to some Roman people. And so they became devout, God-fearing people. They said, you know, I like the stuff that's going on here. They had not yet converted to Judaism, but they were practicing some of the values of Judaism. And so they were kind of God-fearing. They recognized that the God of of the Jewish people was the one that guided them and gave them this special something that was attractive. And they said, I want to be near that. I want to be uh, attached to that. And so it says that he and his family were devout, which means he practiced the stuff of Judaism pretty religiously. He was devout. He didn't question. He didn't wander. He didn't interject his own stuff. He accepted their way and, and went about it. Now, was he a Jewish man? No, he was not. He was not a Jewish man. We're going to find that out in a minute. Now, he was not only religious, but he was a generous man. In the next part of chapter 10, verse 2, it says, he gave generously to those in need. He gave generously. Now, there's three things that the Jewish people did that exhibited their piety. Now, think about your life for a minute. What are the things that you do that exhibit your piety? Now, what is piety? Anybody know what piety is? It's the way that you practice your faith. Okay. It's the things that you do that exhibit your faith. It's piety. Okay. What are some of the things that you do that exhibit your faith? You come to church. church. Oh, but I want you to quit coming to church. Okay. I don't want you to come to church. I want you to be the church. Okay. And we come to gather together. I want you to keep doing that. Don't get me wrong. Every Sunday, I want us to get together because what does Hebrews ten twenty five say? Don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together, as is the habit of some people. But he says, all the more, we need to get together all the more as we see the day of Christ's return drawing near. Why? Because we need encouragement to continue our piety or our exhibit of faith to the world. Okay. So I hope you get some encouragement today. Now that was one of the things, there are three things that they did that exhibited their piety. One was that they gave alms to the poor. And that's what this generosity here of Cornelius is all about. He gave alms to the poor. Now, one of the things that we, I think we ought to do, is we ought to give alms to the poor. Don't you? (laughs) Okay, we do. Okay, Uh, There are a lot of people that are needy in our world today that we contribute to, don't we? Okay, So we're showing our piety or our exhibit of our faith by giving to people who need stuff. Okay, now, there's a second thing that they did, and that's the next thing that Cornelius was. He was a prayerful man. Okay? He was a prayerful man. Okay, in the third part of Acts chapter 10, verse 2, it says, And he prayed to God regularly. Now, what was a regular prayer time for the Jewish people? He prayed to God regularly. How many times do you pray a day? Now, I know that you all are good Christian people, and you pray without ceasing Okay, how how hard is that? And how's it working for you? You know, is praying without ceasing hard? I want to give you a tip. Many times when we hear the word pray without ceasing, as the Apostle Paul has instructed us to do, pray without ceasing, we think, I have to talk to God all the time. Do you think God gets tired of hearing you? Nope. <laughs> now that I think about it, you know, maybe... Well, I don't think God gets tired of hearing you unless you're talking when he is. I don't know that he gets tired of hearing you, but I think that he would want you to be quiet so that you can hear God. That's praying. Prayer is conversation, isn't it? Most of the time we think prayer is a monologue. I've got to let God know what I need him to do and how he should do it and all that stuff. That, that, yeah, and I've got to beg him. yeah I've got to wear him down because apparently he's not hearing me. Because if he heard me, he would agree with me. And if he agreed with me, he would do what I want. Yeah. How many times have you said to somebody in your life, do you hear me? And, has that, and that person has said, yeah. You know? Now what do we think by hearing? We think that if somebody hears me, they agree with me. You know, And they will do what I'm instructing or what I'm requesting, right? Now, can th- people hear you and still disagree with you? Oh, yes. yeah. yeah. Has God ever done that? Has he heard you but disagreed with you? Yeah. Yes. yeah. Has God ever said no? Yes. <laughs> no. Yes. No. Yes. Okay. I love the way that interchange happens. Okay. So he was a prayerful man. He prayed to God regularly. Now, the Jews prayed how many times a day? Three times a day. Okay. They had prescribed times that they prayed. One was at? I want to say nine, noon, and three. Okay, nine, noon, and three, through the day. They would pray. Now, and so therefore, you know, they, they, they practiced prayer. And this guy was devout. He was religious. He practiced praying three times a day. So he was generous. He gave to people who had need. He was, he was prayerful. He did the things that God, he prayed and asked God, and listened to God. But also the last thing we want to talk about him is that he was a Gentile man a Gentile man. He was a little bit on the outside when it came to Jewish hierarchy. He was on the outside of that special closed club because the children of Israel, the Jewish people, believed that they were the children of God, that he had assembled them apart from everyone else, and they had lost track of their mission. Now, what was their mission? When God made the covenant with Abraham, he said several things. One of the things he said was, man, you're going to be so numerous. It's going to be like the dust in the air. It's going to be like the sand on the seashore. It's going to be like the stars in the sky. There's going to be so many of them you can't count. So many Jewish people that you're not going to be able to count them. He says. Also, he says, you're going to have your own land. At this time, they didn't have their own land. You know, it's kind of interesting when you think about the history of Israel. They have not always been. Okay? Before Abraham, there was no Israel. Actually, before uh, the 12 tribes, there was no Israel. You know, there was this beginning point where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the chosen ones through whom the promise was given, are going to build this great nation, okay? Jacob has some sons, right? He becomes Israel, he has 12 tribes, and they proliferate, and they get what? They find out that, man, there's famine in the land, we gotta go to Egypt, they go to Egypt, and they get get into Egypt, and then God says, calls them out with Moses, Moses takes them out of Egypt. That's a great story all in itself. But he gets them, and they wander through the desert for 40 years because they're not people of faith yet. And God's got to build faith into them. In fact, he's going to have to have a a generation of people die off because they have not been faithful. And so he has this generation of people die off, and now this new young group is coming up, and he says, okay, we're going to go into the promised land. And Moses dies, and, and then all of a sudden Joshua takes him into the promised land. And they have to go in there and occupy the land. That's when the nation of Israel is truly born, and they get their own land. When you think about the issues of today and the crises that are going on in the Middle East, it's all about land, really. And when you think about it, you know, the people that were there before the Israelites, you know, before the Jewish, the Hebrew people come into the land, they're saying, hey, this was our land. And the Israelites are saying, no, no, it's our, the Jewish people say, no, it's our land. God gave it to us. Well, who's God, you know? And so we have all of this stuff going on in the Middle East now that unless you understand the religious background of things and what God has done, you kind of go, wow, there's no solution to this. And there may not be an earthly solution to that. So anyway, he was a Gentile man. He was on the outside of this Jewish thing that says God's chosen people. But they had lost sight of the fact that they were chosen for a reason. They were chosen to represent to the rest of the world who God is. And what God is and how he interacts with people. And they were there to tell people about God. But what had they done? They had guarded this thing about God and says, no, we're God's chosen people. And we've got to keep people out. We've got to keep people out. And God truly said, don't intermarry with those people who are of unlike faith. Because in that process, your faith will be diluted. Okay? And so there was some protection there. Let's be honest. God wanted to protect their faith, not just their national heritage. Not just their chosenness. He wanted to protect their faith. Now, Jesus comes along later on and uh, and he addresses the things to the the Jewish people and he's addressing his ministry to the Jewish people. All of a sudden this lady comes up and she says, you know, what about me? And he says, oh, you know, uh, you're not a Jewish person. She says, oh yeah, but even the dogs get to eat the scraps from the master's table. And he goes, oh man, I haven't seen faith like that in amongst the Jewish people. He says, wow, that's what Jesus was all about. And that's what God is all about. Faith in him, not just protecting a nation so that no outsiders get in, but the Jewish people had lost sight of that. And so now we find this Gentile man being very attracted to this thing of faith, this Jewish faith. And he's, he's a Gentile man though, so he's still kind of on the outside. Okay. Now, we're going to come to the second person in our little scenario here, and that's Peter. Now, what did Peter believe? Okay, what did Peter believe that we can find out here? First of all, Peter believed that action is dictated by the law, Okay, or religious rules dictate your actions. How many of you were raised in a church like that? I was. That There were religious rules, and you can't break the religious rules, because that's what keeps us... Different from everybody else. Now, what are some of the religious rules that were there? You had to behave properly. You had to be a moral person. But also, one of those religious rules I found out was that church starts at 11 o'clock. It really did. Church starts at 11 o'clock. I remember in a church that I pastored, we were going to change it and do it. We have to have church at 11. It'll be okay if you want to start, but we have to have one at 11. I said, why is that? We've always done it that way that's the way we are. I said, well, do you know why that 11 o'clock hour became so holy? You know, you're not finding the 11 o'clock hour inscribed in the Bible, you know, so you can't use that. You know, there's a tradition of, you know, many churches, 11 o'clock is the time. But I said, do you know why that is? Because we came from a society in which it was an agrarian society. We had chores to do. And by the time you got your Sunday chores done, it was then time to go to church, and that was usually 11 o'clock. So if you're going to go milk cows, I'll keep us at 11. But, you know, if you're not going to go milk cows, then could we change the time? Another thing, another rule that we have in the church, uh, used to have in the church, was that the pastor would always teach from a pulpit. You know, pulpit. I always liked that word, pulpit. You know, I didn't know what, you know, I just like the pit part of it. It's a pulpit. You know, it just sounds, and I, and I have to be honest, when I was growing up as a kid, it almost sounded like a cuss word, the pulpit. You know, I don't know, it just kind of rolls off your tongue like that. And I remember thinking, that's just kind of a mean word, pulpit. And, uh, but we had to have that. I remember uh, we were going to change the pulpit because sometimes when you stand behind something, uh, it kind of disconnects you from your audience. And I thought, you know, I'd like to do something to be more connected to the audience and and to the congregation. And so let's get a plexiglass pulpit. We can still have a pulpit, but let's have a plexiglass one. I remember a lady came to my office. She says, you know, I'm not opposed to that so much. But could we just have the wooden one kind of off to the side? (laughs) (laughs) Honest. You cannot make this stuff up. Okay. She said, just put it off to the side. I said, well, why do you want to do that? Well, just because that's just the way it's always been. I said, you know what? You know why Why nothing changes? Because we're so attached to the way things have always been. Sometimes change is good. Sometimes change is good. And I hope you believe that change is good, because sometimes the rules dictate our actions. And sometimes we make rules out of things that are not rules. Now, the Jewish people had done that. So Paul says, uh, or Peter says, you know, I believe in the rules. That's what dictates my action. Because Peter has this dream. And in this dream, there's this big like bed sheet that's lowered down on the four corners. Okay, the four corners come down to rest. And on this are all kinds of animals. Now, what did the religious people of Judaism believe about dietary restrictions? They believed that you could only eat clean foods. Okay? What were the two restrictions? What were the two indicators of clean food? They had to chew the cud. Okay, they had that, to, to me, that's just kind of nasty to think about. And it had to have a split hoof. Okay, okay so those are two, two of the basic rules. Okay, so anything that didn't, you know, regurgitate its food and didn't have a split hoof, you couldn't eat that stuff. And so Peter has this dream, and all, this, all these animals are on this sheet. And, uh, and God says, eat. He says, oh, no, I can't, I can't do that. In fact, we find here in Acts chapter 10, verse 4, "'Surely not, Lord,' Peter replied, "'I have never eaten anything impure or unclean.'" And so the sheet goes up. This happens three times, three times. And Peter goes, oh, man, I, can, I can't do that. And in the end, God says, "'Don't declare anything unclean "'that I have declared to be clean.'" Now, this is all about diet that he's talking about. Okay? He has this vision of diet, And he has no clue about Cornelius. But now Cornelius has had a dream, too. He's had this vision. And he has this vision, and and God speaks to him through an angel. And the angel says, I want you to send some men. I want you to go get in contact with this guy, Peter. He's down here. Go send some men. Have him come and listen to what he has to say. I want you to listen to him. Okay? Do what he says. And so they have these kind of coinciding things. Now, Peter has no clue that his vision really means something different than just, hey, I can eat all things. Because Jesus has already been on the earth, and Jesus has already declared all foods to be clean. Jesus has already done that. But Peter's still stuck with the rules. And so here he is, still practicing the rules, practicing the rules, practicing the rules, and saying, that's how I show my piety. Now, we get stuck there sometimes, don't we? We get stuck exhibiting our display of faith based on rules rather than something that Peter's going to learn here real quick. So, he first of all, he says, religious rules dictate my action. Okay, The second thing that he believed was that the Holy Spirit can be trusted. Okay, The Holy Spirit can be trusted. Notice what happens in verses 19 through 20. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Now, these guys are at Peter's house in response to Cornelius' vision that says, hey, get in touch with this guy, Peter. So Cornelius takes, he gets two of his servants and one of his guardsmen, the fellow soldiers, who was also devout, he says, you guys go get this guy, bring him back to me. I need to hear what he has to say because God's speaking to him. Now, um, so... Cornelius sends his guys, and what, what did Peter say? Peter could have said, I'm not going to Cornelius, he's a Gentile. What do we have? And one of the rules for Judaism also was that you couldn't eat with Gentiles. Why couldn't you eat with Gentiles? Because they might cook their food with something that you can't eat. My son has a, a Jewish friend, just a dynamite guy, and uh, he comes to our house for dinner sometimes, and we have to be really careful about how we prepare the food because, you know, you can't eat something that's cooked in its mother's milk. So how do you know if that, that homogenized milk that you're pouring out and you might cook gravy or something with, how do you know if it wasn't the mother's milk that, of the beef that you're kind of crumbling up to put in the gravy? You don't know that. You don't know if it's related or not, so therefore, you can't eat it. And I'm thinking, man, I could never be Jewish. You know, because uh, that that's just too hard. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm on the seafood diet. You know, you see food, you eat it. And it's not, it's not that hard for me. But, you know, when, when Harrison comes over, that's, you know, we do that stuff for him because we, we love the guy. And so um, that's what Peter said. You know, I can't eat with these guys, so I'm not going to go to their house. You couldn't—you know, you didn't go in there because there was just stuff that could, could mess you up, could make you unclean. And so therefore they didn't do that. And so here, the Holy Spirit says to Peter, I want you to go to Cornelius' house. These three men down there, I have sent them. Oh, now, now, so Peter here is in a quandary. Have you ever been in a quandary where you think God wants you to do something, but you think, boy, that violates one of the rules that I have. You know, I think God wants me to do it, but it violates the rules. Oh, man, I'm in a quandary. So that's where Peter finds himself. So what does he choose? Does he choose the rules? or does he choose the Holy Spirit of God? Because it says here, Peter is still thinking about the vision. And the Spirit said to him, okay, and the Spirit is capital S, the Holy Spirit of God said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Go down, uh, get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them because God knew that he would hesitate to go with them because they're Gentile people. I can't be touched by that stuff. And so what does Peter decide? He decides he's going to trust the Holy Spirit of God, rather than the rules. And so Peter's having this transformation of thought. Now, as we come to go over the rules, as we come to breaking, out of, breaking barriers down, we have to think, am I going to trust my rules, which have kind of governed my life, or am I going to trust the Holy Spirit of God? And Peter, very wisely, chooses to trust the Holy Spirit of God. Now, he goes with them, and as soon as Peter enters the room where Cornelius is, what does Cornelius do? He bows down. Okay. He almost worships him. And I find, you know, Peter is just a very cool guy. He says, oh, no, don't do that. Holy cow. Who do you think I am? You know, don't do that. However, you know, and, and, and Peter does this several times in his, in his journey, and Paul does the same thing. You know, I'm not, don't do that. Don't worship me as a God. You know, don't do that. And so he tells him to get up. Now, it's interesting because if, if you come from Catholic background, Peter is a very revered man in the faith, very revered. In fact, in St. Peter's Basilica, there's a statue of him. And when people, Catholic people, go to St. Peter's Basilica, they kneel down and they kiss the toe of the statue. Now, I wonder, that's the same Peter that told Cornelius, don't do that. I wonder what Peter would really do if he was at St. Peter's Basilica and he found people kneeling down and kissing his toe. he would probably say, whoa, wait a minute. That's probably, I think he would have the same attitude that he has here with Cornelius and I find it kind of interesting uh, and I think he would stop that. So, The point is that the Holy Spirit can be trusted is now what Peter believes. He comes to believe that. The third thing is that he comes to say, okay, now not only can he be trusted, but now the Holy Spirit dictates my actions. It came from, okay, my rules dictate my action to, okay, I need to learn to trust the Holy Spirit of God. Because remember, the Holy Spirit of God has not been around in the lives of believers all that long. They're getting kind of used to this thing. And now he says he can be trusted, therefore... The Holy Spirit of God will now dictate my actions. I hope that that's the place you get to real fast, that religious rules don't dictate your actions, but the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God, that means that when you're in line at the grocery store and somebody needs some help, you say, you know, the Holy Spirit's telling me. The other day, have you ever missed God? You know, he prompted you to do something and you didn't do it. The other day I was with my granddaughter and my daughter and we went and got ice cream, which is one of the things that, Every grandfather needs to do with his grandfather. Okay, so we went and got ice cream. And in the line ahead of us, there was this family, uh, the dad, the mom, and the little son. And they were, you could tell that they didn't have a lot of money, or they didn't appear to have a lot of money. I don't know, they might have been wealthy, uh, but they didn't appear to have a lot of money. And as she paid, she got ready to pay, she put up a debit card up there, you know, one of those prepaid debit cards. And I go, oh, man, you know, and I felt God saying, you pay for her ice cream. And by the time I got it through my head, she had already paid. And I thought, man, I missed an opportunity there. Because it's not the rules that dictate your action, but it's the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God that dictate your action. So, you know, I'm a little retarded, a little slow. Can't say retarded anymore. Uh, I'm a little slow. And so I, uh, I, I missed that one. I don't think, you know, I don't want us to miss that many. So when God says something... You know, immediate, is is delayed obedience, obedience? Better (laughs) Better than no obedience, huh? I'm going to suggest to you that delayed obedience probably needs to be overcome by immediate obedience. And that's where I missed. You know, I was not immediately obedient. Okay, now why is it that we're not immediately obedient? (laughs) Oh, we're slow. Uh And we're slow in hearing God, and we're slow in saying... I wonder if that really is God, or I wonder if that's something else. Now, here, how much do you think the lady's ice cream cost? Seven bucks, probably, you know, uh, for three of them. And I'm thinking, what if it really wasn't God, and what if I paid for something that God didn't say to pay for? What's the downside to that? Not much. You know, In fact, there's probably no downside, uh, because she'd say, why do you want to pay for me? I said, just, you know. And I already had it, you know, after the fact, I'm playing this scenario out and I said, what I sh-, you know, I would have done this, I would have paid for it. She would have said, oh, why are you doing that? And I just said, oh, you know, I just, uh, you know, I'm short on good deeds for today and I need to do some good deeds, you know, whatever, you know, and I have this whole thing played out and she's all happy and she says, oh, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to find Jesus. And I go, oh yeah, that'd be great. You know, and I have this whole thing go on in my head and guess what? None of it happened. None of it happened because I wasn't immediately obedient. So, you know, let's let, help me get over that. okay? And you do the same. In Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Now, where did he learn that, that God doesn't show favoritism? Because remember, his vision was all about food. But God had a bigger message than food, didn't he? He says, and God throws out the blanket statement, not every, whatever I say is clean is clean and what had he said about Gentile people? I'm sending some Gentile people to you. I want you to do what they say. I want you to go to their house. I want you to interact with them. I want you to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them, which is what I've given to the Jewish people to do. I want you to do that. And he said, Peter says, oh, I get it. Notice what he says. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Now, Let's look at Cornelius. Cornelius, did he fear God? He was a God-fearer, right? In fact, if you read this chapter, and I want you to read it this afternoon, you'll find that the story of Cornelius is repeated three times in this chapter, and again, in in chapter 11, gets repeated again. You know, stories like that. And so Luke's really trying to help us see, I want you to see this thing, man. I'm going to repeat it. I'm going to repeat it. I'm going to repeat it. It's very important because it will break barriers down. What God has said is clean is clean. And so, therefore, show no favoritism. Okay, awesome. Third thing, and we're going to close with this, the result. What's the result of Peter's change, transformation of thought? Now, how do you get transformed? We talked about transformation last week. But we get transformed by the Holy Spirit Spirit of God, and what does he do? He renews our mind. Okay, renews our mind. We think differently, we desire different stuff, We think differently about people. We think differently about God's creation. We believe differently about God himself. So we believe differently. We think differently. Therefore, we act differently. Don't let your actions precede your belief. You know what I mean? Because that's where rules come in. Okay, I'm going to change the way I behave because of the rules, not because of the way I think. And I use this all the time. What do we typically think of people who have bad things happen to them? Well, they deserve it. You know, They made some bad choices in life. They got whatever. They got hung up on some bad behavior, some bad habits, some bad dependencies, and they get what they deserve. Well, let me ask you. Do you want to get what you deserve? No. (laughs) No, we don't. We don't want to get what we deserve, but we want other people, you know, we say, well, they get what they deserve. So what do I need to change? I need to change the way I see other people. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem in Matthew chapter nine, and he gets there and he weeps when he looks at Jerusalem. Why does he weep? Because he has compassion for the people okay they are they're being led by their thoughts that are ungodly okay they're being led by the thoughts of the evil one, okay by the world and he says, man, that 's a bad deal, so I grieve for that they're, they're, and then he ends up and saying you know they're, they're they're lost they are like sheep without a shepherd. And that bugs Jesus. And so what's, what's the thought? What's the remedy? The remedy is that people get a shepherd. Show them the way. And can you be a shepherd? Absolutely you can. But first we have to change the way we think. And we have to change. People don't, you know, they shouldn't, well, should they get what they deserve? I'm not, yeah. <laughs> I want you to say no. Because what, is, what does God want? What does God value most? Sacrifice or mercy? Mercy. God desires mercy above sacrifice. And so if we don't have merciful hearts, and what's a merciful heart? Mercy says, you sh- I don't want you to get the bad stuff that you deserve. Okay, I don't want you to get the bad stuff that you deserve. I want you to get what you need to overcome the bad stuff in your life. That's what mercy is. And so God wants us to have mercy foremost in our minds, not this thought that says, you get what you deserve. Have a transformation of thought. And the only way you can do that is to be a student of the word of God. And I'm not saying you have to do all the in-depth study, but you have to read the thing every day. You have to let that change the way you think. I was on the phone the other day with with a friend of mine. And he says, man, I've got these things going on, and I'm scared, and blah, blah, blah. I said, well, who do you trust? What do you, what do you believe, and who do you trust? Well, I trust God. I said, well, do you? You know, what has he said about these situations? I don't know. What do you think he said? I said, I don't know, because it's not my problem. God speaks to the one who has the problem, so listen to God. And why do we not want to listen to God? Because most of the time, we don't know how to hear his voice, because we haven't heard it often enough. You know, you hear Pastor Mike preach and you hear teachers and you do all this stuff. But boy, practicing the presence of God and hearing him is a whole new realm for most Christians. You hear God by tuning into his voice. How do you know what his voice is? You read the word of God. That's the voice of God. And so you get used to hearing that. You find out what he values. You find out what he counts important. You find out all of that stuff. And then when you're in the world, you say, oh, you know what? God is most concerned about the redemption of people. And these people, oh man, if they got what they deserved, they would never get redeemed. So let us show them mercy. And if I show them mercy, if I can show them who God is, then, you know, and you start hearing God. You start hearing God because he's not just something you do on Sunday, but he's something that you practice every day of the week. So therefore, the result, here we go. Peter had this epiphany. He used to trust the rules. He knew that he could trust the Holy Spirit of God. And now he says, okay, the Holy Spirit dictates my actions. And so what's the result of that? Well, in chapter 10, verses 43 through 44, we find that belief comes to Cornelius and his household. Now, Cornelius, he's a God-fearing man, right? So he invited all of his family to come and hear what Peter had to say. He said, man, come on, family, let's get in here, because this is important. This is from God, and it's important for you to hear it. It's important for you to hear. That's why when we have young kids at home, we want them to come to church with us, don't we? Because it's important for us as a family. So many people say, you know, well, I don't want to dictate to my kids what they have to believe. Well, gee, you know, what if your kid believes that he shouldn't go to school tomorrow? Oh yeah, let's give him that freedom. What if he believes that he should eat cake for dinner? Okay, I'll give him that freedom. You know, we start indulging our kids, pretty soon they don't have any foundation at all. Give your kids foundation about the truth The truth is found in the word of God. So Cornelius invites all of his family. And in verses 43 and 44, Peter gives this thing about, and I wish we had time to do it, because he talks about Jesus uh, and as he is revealed by God. And he gets to the bottom of it in verse 43. And he says, All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Cornelius and all of his household, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit says, hey, you guys, what Peter says is true. Trust it. Incorporate it. Use it in your life. And so they do. They believe. And then as a result of their belief, there's always an outward expression. God will always give you an outward expression of your belief. And so now we find that not only do they believe, but baptism is the result. These people are baptized. In verses 46 through 48, then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And this story is coming to me that I I heard just the other day. Oh, Okay, I was talking with a lady the other day, and she was sharing with me how when she came to a, a particular church, uh, she said, you know, she lived out of town, and she came to visit her girlfriend who went to this church, and so she went to church with this girl, and she she had a, an experience with Jesus, and she was transformed, and she she went forward and told the pastor about that, and she met with a deacon, and the deacon said, oh, you know, we, you know, and she said, I want to be baptized. He says, well, no, yet. You know we, we want you to be and, and I, I understand the 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 desire of this man. he says, "I want you to go to a church in your hometown and be baptized because that's where, I want you to get plumbed into a church. I want you to be some place where you can get the nurture and the help that you need and so I understand that, but his belief was that you get baptized into a church into a local church. now Peter here says that they were, the reason you get baptized is because they have received the Holy Spirit. Just as we have. You've received the Holy Spirit of God. It comes to live with you and you when you make your your statement of faith when you when you say that I'm I'm a I'm a follower. And so he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And so this guy thought and, and my dad believed this as well, that you get baptized into the local church, not into the church, you know, the worldwide church, uh, the fellowship of believers. And so um I want you to know that our church believes that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the outward expression of that faith is baptism. Jesus says to be baptized. Okay? It, it, when he tells his disciples to go out, he says, uh, go into all the world and make disciples. And he says, here's how you do it. You baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then you teach them. You teach them everything that I've taught you. And he gets to the end. He says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Don't worry about baptism and teaching. I'm with you. Okay, you, you got this. And so when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's a time to be baptized. You don't get baptized into a local church, but you get baptized into the, the body of Christ, which is universal. Okay, So that's what we believe, and that's what the, the scriptures teach us. Now, what does baptism do? It doesn't it doesn't make you a follower. It's an exhibit that you are a follower. It's a, it's a testimony. It's a visual expression of me being a follower of Christ. You go into the water, and you're representing your old life. Your old life was characterized by sin. Okay? And Jesus died so that you don't have to suffer the penalty of sin. So you're going to die too. And when I baptized, I put people under the water. Jesus was in the tomb three days. I'm just saying, okay? Some of you can hold your breath longer than others. I, I heard a pastor say one time he was talking to his friend, and his friend spent years, you know, he witnessed to his friend over and over and over and over again. And finally, about 15 years later, this guy comes to Christ. And he says, man, I, I want you to baptize me. The pastor's name was Bill. He says, Bill, I want you to baptize me. He says, okay. He goes, now, is there anything I need to know? He says, yeah. The deeper the sin, the deeper the dunk." The guy goes, oh, because they knew each other. And so, but my point is, is that you go representing your death to sin, and then you're raised to do what? To walk a new life. To walk a new life. And that's what baptism is. It's a symbol of the change that has happened in my life. So that's what happens here with Cornelius and his household. So my question to you is, do you have any questions?